talking about precipitation. I'm talking Father God, He gave Jesus the nations, and He's ruling now, even over pagans. One day He's coming back. You just gotta have patience. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. All Hey guys, welcome to Dat Postmill Podcast, where we are excited to announce our new mascot and visitor interviewee interviewee today, Joel McDat Postmill. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Are you uh, are you cool with being our mascot? <laughs> absolutely, man. I, can you stoop down low enough? Just just for just for the episode, maybe. Uh, it's not stooping at all. You know, the the name McDermott actually comes from the uh, Scott Scots Irish background, I believe the name was D Armada, and it means freedom. So, nice. you know, McFreedom, McPostmill, same thing, right? So same thing. Let's yeah. roll with it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're we're stoked to have you on today. Thank you for uh, thanks for being willing to let us uh, pick your mind. Oh, not at all, man. I requested this. Remember, I came to you guys and said, "Hey, when do I get to be on the show?" I, I didn't know if you yeah. wanted us to announce that or not. No, not at all. <laughs> no, it's a great yeah. show. I want to be on it. So, awesome. I was hoping you'd had like you know a hundred thousand listeners, but we'll get there someday. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Joel, what's your favorite episode so far? Well, uh, I'm going to be honest. I've only listened to one and part of another one. Now, don't so take that two, wrong. Two to choose from. <laughs> because, you know, I have very little time to do this. It, it, oh, it, sure. it blows me away. The whole podcast world is a little bit new to me because most of my career and education has been in the print world. So, you know, when you get into, you realize a lot of people do a lot of things just in audio and in audio only. And mm-hmm. that's difficult for me because... You have to set aside, you know, if you listen to a James White DL, what have you got, an hour or two hours you have to set aside to listen to something? And then if you want to respond to it, well, then you got to transcribe it so you get every word right, and how long does that take? So, you know, in the midst of all what's going on right now, a lot of new plans for the future at American Vision, plus all the stuff we've just recently gone through with the theonomy debate, and publications we're preparing, plus day-to-day type stuff, um... That is a lot of work, and to carve out an hour or two-hour chunk during the day to listen to something is not easy. But that said, I did carve out an hour or two to listen to you guys on the, I believe it was the post-debate show, the review and whatnot. And I was actually very impressed, not only with the professionalism and the depth of, of a lot of the knowledge of some of the background sources and whatnot, and the way it was handled, it was, and there was no, you know, what we're accused of being angry theonomists all the time. And I hear the word chest thumping, and I don't even know, I haven't even seen that. I don't know where it came from. But uh, you guys handled it so well. I thought this is, they're doing a good job. So I'd like to go uh, be part of it. So that's why I asked about it. And uh, so I guess only one episode so far, that was my favorite one, right? Yeah, yeah that's sweet. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. I, we're, that we're, we're honored. We, we definitely appreciate that. Adam, I think that was the one that you weren't on, so that must be why it was so good. That's great. <laughs> but you know, I've, that was the that was the episode that Adam had the th- he caught the theonomy. That's right. He did. <laughs> I was I was traumatized, but, but you realize this is this will be the second time I've interviewed 
Dr. McDermott. So I'm already I'm already one upping you. <laughs> and uh, I was going to ask you about that. How is uh, Reformed and Reloaded going? Really good. Um, we uh, we've been trying to do a little bit more blogging, and we posted a blog post that got shared on Facebook a bunch of times. And I looked at the stats of the website. And I thought I was getting hacked because so many I had so many <laughs> hits to my website, and I was like, "Oh, there must be something wrong." <laughs> going from hundreds of visits to thousands. To, yeah, to thousands. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's awesome. No, that's an, an amazing issue, and there's so much actual, uh, tangible good and progress that can be done on the gun rights issue. And I have some, I have lots of friends actually who are engaged in that right now. I should, if you haven't already, I should probably hook you up with them for some interviews. Yeah, I, we really need to, to be pushing this issue. The, the kind of, sorry to sidetrack the conversation, but Not at all. The, the, the issue is kind of clouded because a lot of people who are involved in the gun rights debate are idiots and generally just jerky type of people on both sides, whether you're anti-gun or pro-gun. And so the the idea of getting to the issue from a biblical perspective, taking emotion out of it, and looking at what the Bible actually says on the issue is very difficult. And when you get people, even well-meaning Christians, who they see a, they see a news story and they say, yeah, let's let's arm ourselves and, and shoot everybody, you know, when they look at us the wrong way and things like that, it's just... It's unproductive, and and I feel like there really needs to be a level-headedness regarding yeah. regarding the issue, but still like a very very strong anti-tyranny, pro-biblical law view of it. And so it, it's really a difficult fine line to walk. Well, you know, it, it's not sidetracking at all. By the way, it's very relevant. We're going to talk about restoring America in a minute. It's very relevant to that. I do want to say that uh, the the one episode, Adam, where you, the same episode that you weren't on, was the one episode where we did discuss uh, that issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What well, what I was wanting to say there was that not only is that relevant, but um, you it, it's really like a lot of other issues in which Christians are involved in politics, the abortion issue. The, the vast mainstream of Christian activists in that realm are compromised doctrinally, compromised politically, and are committed to kind of a mainstream effort of what they're doing. Very slow incremental change. And honestly, it gets to the point where it's, it could be called corruption. And that, that's a whole other discussion itself. But you get to the point where you have people fundraising off of Christians for an issue that they claim to be changing or fighting against. In reality, they're not doing much of anything, if anything at all, and they'll get some minor token of a bill passed and come back and report it as progress and raise more funds. Uh, meanwhile, we're 40 years down the road and there's not a, not a chink made in the armor of the abortion lobby. And the same thing is true in the gun rights industry. The NRA is for the most part co-opted, compromised, and there is rising up now movements across the country at various state levels and at grassroots levels that are doing things much more productive on much smaller budgets and having much more effect because they're, comp they're concentrating on more radical, hardcore, and even biblical issues. 
So that's true in the gun area. It's true in the abortion area. It's going to be true, I think, eventually in the right to work area. And the truth is we could make a long list of type 10th Amendment type issues, localism issues, and things of that nature. So um, not only is this not a sidetracked issue, it fits right in with what we're talking about, and it fits right in with the agenda of a theonomic postmillennialism uh, as we've conceived it. And, and it's very important. It's very important to discuss across the board and to note that, yeah, there are Christians involved in all of these industries, in all of these activist-type um, uh, movements, and for the most part, they've been ineffective for compromised theology and compromised principles and compromised politics. So that needs to be said, and it needs to be kept in mind as we go forward making plans for what to do in the future. That was good stuff, not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important that we that we do. I think that's a big a big issue in America is, is really letting the church understand and realize that everything is gospel issue. It's it's everything is very important. So when we talk about gun rights and, and our liberties, um, and we when we talk about the reign of Christ and and what He has for His people ruling over the nations, when we talk about God's law and, and all these, th- we're talking about you know a biblical worldview. We're talking about the kingdom. Of God, so um, I think that th- there's just this plague in the church today, and in, in in America especially, where you see this like categorization or making these dichotomies that don't belong, or these categories that really just aren't even really uh, true categories. Absolutely, and it's a real problem because you see, uh, well, there are Christians at all levels especially now since the 1980s and forward with the Reagan revolution and the, the, the uh, religious right and all of that uh, got very involved in politics. And that actually started a lot of good discussions on Christians being involved in politics, but for the most part they rejected a theonomic thesis. And so you get a lot of this kind of you know strange bedfellows type activism and you get a lot of uh, compromised agendas, and it ends up God doesn't bless it in the end. But on the other hand, you bring in the aspect of theonomy, and all of the Christians that should be just head over heels engaging this, uh, all the, they hear Old Testament law, and all they can think of is stones flying everywhere and Taliban. And, you know, so there's a profound ignorance among Christian people as re- in regard to what the biblical law is and how it applies in society. So you're, you're dealing with lots of levels of ignorance, but at the same time, lots of levels of, of anger and resentment for what's happening in society. People who have good motives, but very poor foundations from which to advance those uh, ideas and motives. And it, it, it just, it's just a losing recipe in the end, because if you engage the enemy using the enemy's tactics, and using the enemy's foundations of law and order, who's going to win in the end? You know, you're, you're not only on the enemy's home field, but he doesn't have any rules, and you end up having to sell out to that problem. The next thing, you don't have any ethics. The next thing, you're compromising to win. God doesn't bless that. God never has blessed that. And look at the conservative movement over the past... Well, I, I go back, I have an article where I go back to 1964, 
and it's not to say that Goldwater was a theonomist by any means, but go back and look to when the conservatives really began to gain control and you had a truly radical free market conservative stand up who was a man of principle for the most part and the establishment said, no way, we're not backing this guy. We're not helping him. And they backed away. Now, and of course, Goldwater got trashed in the 64 election. It's one of the great landslides in American history. We got, because the Eastern establishment of the GOP refused to back Goldwater, we got Lyndon Johnson. Now, and keep in mind, who were the establishment Republicans at the time? Nelson Rockefeller was one. Another one, very prominent, was a man named George Romney, father of the current Mitt Romney, refused to help Goldwater. And they backed off, and because of them backing off and refusing to say party first, you know, when there's an establishment guy in there, it's always party first, and they want us to sell out for him. But when one of a hardcore guy gets in there, they back off and party first doesn't exist. So they backed off, and what did we get? We got Lyndon Johnson, which was the Great Society and the first major health insurance advance, which was Medicare. All of that stuff, the Civil Rights Act, all because of that, that movement. And Now, some good did come out of it, but what was it in the long run? What major advance has happened in national politics since 1964 on the conservative side? Name me one. We've watched Medicare come in. We've watched Obamacare now come in. We've watched all kinds of issues in the Supreme Court. We've watched Roe v. Wade. We could make a long list. And what have the conservatives won in that time period? Name me one major advance. As far as I can tell, there's only one. And that is, that was Reagan's victory early in his first term on corporate income tax. They brought the corporate income tax way down. But it was offset by huge spending deficits. It was offset by all kinds of foreign policy uh, issues. It was offset by all kinds of national debt and things like that. So uh, long story short, what have we gained by playing their game? For the most part, absolutely nothing. And here we are, conservatives all over the news, all over social media, decrying homosexual marriage and persecution of Christians. And why? Because from day one, they would not support a radical agenda that was actually close to a biblical worldview. Now, the question is, when are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? Now, I said some good came out of that, and again, I've written this in an article. What was the good? Well, a man named Richard Vigory went behind the, the defeated Goldwater and collected his mailing list. And out of that mailing list came the basis for, it was basically the contact list for what became the religious right. It ended up electing Reagan um, and laying the foundations for what became the moral majority and a lot of the grassroots movements. Um, and so there was some good that came out of it. We see, we saw, I should say, a little bit of that in regard to the groundswell of activism that came with the Tea Party, but that's almost already gone. 
I don't think you'll see that again. And, and of course, this election's already lining up to be a lot like the last one. So I, I'm rambling here, it seems like, but the overall point is, if we abandon a hardcore biblical worldview, we end up playing the enemy's game, and the enemy ends up winning in the long term, and that is exactly what we have seen. And we can stand here and decry it all day long, but until you return to those hardcore biblical law principles, you will have nothing except loss. So, there, that's the sermon for mm. the day. Yeah, that's that reminds, awesome. That reminds me about something I heard Doug Wilson say once about voting and voting for just the typical conservative is, um, you know, and it was kind of touching on, like, you know, voting for the lesser evil type thing, but he's, he says, um, voting for someone, so if you're heading towards a cliff, you know, voting for the liberal is just like putting the foot on the gas pedal, but voting for the Republican is just like kind of putting your foot on the brake slightly, so you're slowing down. You're still going in the same direction, you're just going there slower. So, it's Yeah, I would just say leaving it in, leaving it in, uh, you know, cruise control, you may not be speeding up, but you're still in cruise control. Right, mm. instead of turning away, yeah. What we need to do is power slide, slam on the brakes, pull the e-brake, go the other direction. That's right. A little drifting. Drift race, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you don't, you're going to have to sprout wings in the end. And that's what <laughs> yeah. that's what all the fundamentalists hope, hope for. They're, they're seeing the cliff coming, and they're thinking rapture. Don't you see that Jesus purchased me? See the blood on that mercy seat? As a man, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's from eternity. Now that's Bible. Micah 5 2. You believe he's God? Yes, I do. The only hero to die for the villains that's poetic, like Haku. I was pathetic and prideful. I guess that brings us to this 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 book that uh that you that you wrote, sir, that I uh was very encouraged by. I know you said that I, I should be uh, what you, you say earlier, you said I should be broken by. I know you're kidding, but um, I, I, I do have uh, a personal story with that book, which um, I'll save maybe for later. But if maybe we can get into this uh, idea of restoring America, um, this, this book, I think one thing I really enjoyed about the book was how practical it was. It, instead of this kind of pie in the sky, um, maybe if we do this and that, we might be able to change the nation you, you, it seems like you, you have the 10 areas uh, and, you, and you make it clear in your book that there's more than 10, but there, there's 10 areas that Christians right now can focus on and can begin to work towards and improve upon or, at, or, or um, really restore or reform in. And what that did for me was that, that, that gave my wife and I um, an idea that, first of all, um, we're, we're active right now to try to move to the location, to the community where our church is. It's not that far, but it's a small town where my church is and we're outside of living outside of that. We can't vote and we can't be politically active there. So um, I read Restoring America. And one thing I took from it was like, I'm like, baby, we have to move. <laughs> like we have to be able to have a voice in Dunedin because there's so many things that go on there that we don't like. Well, let's let's be in a place where we actually have a voice. But um, so I, 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 of course, have a lot of questions about this book, but maybe if you could um, maybe I I introduce the book a, a little bit more and just maybe what 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 took place to, to bring this kind of work about. Yeah, that's actually where I, exactly where I would start in the, I believe it's in the uh, preface to the book. I talk about 
You know, I was working for American Vision. I took up a lot of the current themes. I was writing a lot on contemporary type political issues. At the time, it was the first Obama election. And I wrote a lot about that. I got involved with a lot of the work in economics and politics by Jim Wallace of Sojourners. He's a leftist. Um, Ronald Sider, who's uh, pretty much faded from the scene, but still has written some. And uh, Tony Campolo, who he, he's kind of the same way. He's a, an older guy, still a little bit active, but he wrote a lot previously on from a leftist perspective. And he was actually the spiritual advisor to Bill Clinton. How would you like to have that job? And, uh, I mean, while he was in office during the Lewinsky affair. So, I mean, uh, have fun. But, but um, uh, so, so I took these, I wrote some, some essays, some foundational essays on what socialism is and did some critiques of them and put a book together called God versus Socialism, a biblical critique of the new social gospel. And it was basically a critique of the left with uh, included some critique of the right as well for being involved in basically the same things when it comes to public schooling, uh, social security, certain issues like that. And I remember the day that I finally got that book done and I was in my office and it was going to the printer and Gary DeMar and Gary North were both standing in my office and I think it was, uh, I think it was North who said, well, now you've written a book critiquing what people ought not to do. Now you need to write a book telling people positively what to do. And I was like, oh, great. Like that wasn't enough, you know. And he's right. You know, he's always said you can't beat something with nothing. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you're just adopting the the enemy's platforms and, and methodologies and baptizing them a little bit, you're not going to gain anything. So I said, all right, let's write a book going through multiple areas of human action and human life from a hardcore biblical perspective and, uh, you know, give some practical advice on what to do. And that turned into Restoring America, which was much bigger than the original idea. It was it involved a lot of American history, not only what to do in our current setting, but, you know, let's talk about what freedom is in this area, whatever it may be, uh, how America once had it, and then talk about how and why it was lost over time. You know, be very, just brutally honest about these things. And a lot of times it was the perceived conservatives in the mix who were the main problem. And let's just lay that on the table and then talk about, okay, now how do we get back to what freedom is? So I did that, those three questions. You know, how, was, how were we once free? How was it lost? And how do we get it back? And I did that in 10 areas, um, education, welfare, um, local government, state government, uh, markets, courts, uh, and you can see them all in the book, of course. Don't ask me to give the list off the top of my head. And I, and I sat down and did that. It turned out to be, we had to trim it back. It was almost 600 pages, and I trimmed it back to 400 and put this book together. And the goal was, like you said, to be very practical um, and also to try to inspire people to think, number one, uh, don't be afraid to destroy your idols or critique your heroes in history, and also to think in the long term. This is something conservatives absolutely fail in time and again, and again, I think it's because of eschatology. We think in the short term. If this doesn't turn around tomorrow, well then, hey, all is lost. If the liberals make an advance over the next five years, well, that's just a trend that's going to continue for the next 500, and we might as well give it up.
the rapture's coming. Well, no, that's not how Christians think. I mean, go back and look at how God works in history in the Bible. I mean, you see, you see the uh, Joshua with a generation coming across the Jordan, settling the the land. It takes an entire generation to do that. The second generation arises and they immediately forget God, and you, then you have the judges. That takes place over a period of about forty years. Forty years. I mean, that's most of our lifetime. And then Samuel appears on the scene. You have David. That appears in the midst of local persecution under Saul. And that goes on. Think about this. The period of the kings and the decline of the nation of Israel takes almost 400 years in which this is, you have ups and downs, and it's a gradual decline until they go into captivity. We could continue this historical narrative of the Bible, but what happens? Uh, it's Change takes place over a long period of time, and that is what we need to get in our minds. This is a multi-generational effort. We didn't lose it overnight. We're not going to get it back overnight. And so Christians need to begin to think about not how do we win the next election at the national level, but how do we begin to start laying the foundations for godly society in my home, in my local community, in my neighborhood, in my local government, and go from there and have a decentralized vision and have a multi-generational vision. So, you know, this is, again, a long-winded answer to a simple question, how'd the book come about? It is, you know, I want to try to inspire Christians to think that way. Yes, think practically, but also think long-term. And so let's put these issues on the table and talk of them in those terms. So that's what I did. And, you know, chapter one is education. I think that's ground zero for restoring biblical freedom in society is defeating and uh, totally privatizing and taking over the uh, educational system. Christians need to get their kids out of godless public and government schools and take care of their education privately and in the home, if possible, uh, according to Scripture. Uh, that's number one. That's where chapter number one starts. And I give practical steps on how to do that because, like I said earlier, there's so much profound ignorance and there is so much uh, misinformation and so much uh, uneducation that we need to do, re-education that we need to do, that we've got to tell that story and we've got to inspire Christians on what the Bible says about these topics and what a biblical society would look like. So we try to do that and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long uphill battle uh, just starting there because there are so many Christians invested in the public school system, uh, profiting from the public school system, um, and they have their lifestyle entrenched financially in a way that is totally dependent upon that system. And even if they saw the light of day and said, you know what, I need to get out of this, it would be very difficult to do for them uh, personally, practically, financially. And so you've got to provide a vision and you've got to provide practical steps and you've got to provide encouragement because it's not going to be easy. So, all right, first of all, start talking about your lifestyle. You know, if you want, if you want to get freedom back, it's going to take sacrifice. What are you willing to sacrifice to do this? You know, you put that challenge. Uh, do you, if you're, if you're sending your kids in public school 
for eight hours of free daycare, however many hours it is, so that your wife can work a second job that she, so you can afford a bigger house in a nice suburb, is that really what God has called us to do if it means sending your kids to be trained the vast majority of the time by people who don't share your worldview, in fact, who hate your worldview, and who are mandated by the state not to teach religion and Bible and are allowed to teach against it in many cases? Is that what God has called, God has called you to do? do you, is that bigger house and that nice cable package and NFL Sunday ticket, is that worth the price of dishonoring God and destroying the foundations of society? You know, you put things in radical terms like that and people can begin to see, and then you start saying, okay, this can be done. There are homeschool co-ops, there are homeschool efforts, there are homeschool helps and resources all over the place now. And people who will help you, guide you, and uh, uh, help to sustain you in doing this as you as you begin it. And I, I, I one anecdote: a gentleman who came to work for uh, American Vision a couple of years ago. You know, he came in and he was not theonomic. He was not uh, barely had a biblical worldview. And first day of work, I had a nice discussion with him, and. He, and long story short, I, I convinced him over the course of a weekend to read some stuff, and he came back on Monday and said, all right, I'm ready. And then he began to talk to his wife about homeschooling. And I, I was not in telling him what to do at this point on anything. He was doing all this on his own, just being inspired by the vision. <laughs> and he said, she said, there's no way I can do this. I, it's absolutely impossible for me to teach my own uh, child at home. I'm just not equipped. I don't have the resources, I don't have the ability. And, but she prayed about it and talked about it. And over the course of two weeks, he came into my office and said, my wife went from saying this is absolutely impossible to saying, you know what, I can do this. And then to saying, I can do this better than they can. And it, it's, so true, it's really, and it really was just, first of all, dropping the idea and giving the encouragement, and that gave the inspiration necessary. And of course, ultimately, it's only the Holy Spirit that brings about these uh, changes in in uh, allegiances. But uh, the, all it all it took was for someone to just to think about it seriously for a little bit, and it made a profound change in their life. And now they're they're sacrificing like crazy uh, in order to maintain doing this. And 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 I would say probably more committed than I am, just because they began the process of thinking about it. So that's that's what Restoring America is about. And we talk about doing it one county at a time, but really it takes place one person at a time. And that's why I'm thankful for podcasts like you guys to put this out there. There'll be a lot of people listen to this that may be just entertaining post-millennialism or maybe entertaining uh, Reformed theology. And they'll hear this and they'll start thinking, you know, I want I want to know more. And they will, you know, there will be some who reject it. It's like Paul on Mars Hill. He mentions the resurrection, and some of them scoff. Some of them walk away saying, I'll talk about it later. And then some of them saying, you know what? The guy's got a point. I want to know more. So that's why I'm in it. That's why I wrote the book is for those people that, that say and who will say continually in the future, I want to know more. And that, that's just exciting for me to be a part of that and to watch the Holy Spirit uh, affect those changes in people's lives. Brother Joel, do you, I'd like to see something 
additional from American Vision that talks about even more specifics on how to make that jump. Because I'm thinking about my own church, for instance, and I'm counting up the, the men in my church, how many people make their living one way or another off the government, whether it's public school teacher, public school teacher working for family services, I work for the federal government. Um, there's so many people who are who have their uh, livelihood wrapped up in this type of thing. They might be a government contractor for Northrop Grumman or you know Lockheed or something like that. How is there a way that we can um, try to equip the saints to divest themselves from from these ty- kind of things? in a way that that doesn't put people destitute on the street. I know I've had a conversation with you privately about about how difficult it is to make the jump. It feels like you're you're offshore on a boat and you need to get to shore. And you're in a position where if I leave my job, I'm going to be homeless. Like how how do we I mean you talked about making sacrifices, but are there practical steps that we can take to to get us closer to to where we need to be in this issue. Well, th- there is no other alternative except for making sacrifices, and that doesn't just apply to the education area. You bring up the the military industrial complex; it applies hugely in that area, and I talk about that in the book too. I have a whole chapter on on defense, and I talk about the history of military and warfare and how that issue plays in. It's it really comes down to that. Uh, Obviously, there are probably guys who could give better practical steps filling in the blanks than I have. But ultimately, I see my job as giving the vision and encouragement and what practical steps I can. The rest is up to the Holy Spirit because that is how theonomic postmillennialism works. If you don't have that, you don't have progress. You know, a lot of people accuse theonomists of being these guys who want to grab the reins of government. And try to impose everything from top down. That would that would be absolutely foolish. I mean, that's that's uh, the man who would be king. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that old movie or not, but uh, um, one of my favorite movies based on a short story by Rudyard Kipling is called The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, 1970s movie stars uh, Sean Connery and a fairly young Michael Caine. And if if you take that route where you you know, through some kind of chicanery or whatever, you get yourself vaulted into the seats of power, you're going to be the one that ends up dead. You're going to be the one that ends up losing. And that's absolute foolishness. No society changes that way. And if it does, it doesn't change for the better. It has to be the Holy Spirit changing hearts and minds. And then the agents of the Holy Spirit in the church coming along behind and teaching the proper uh, vision of what society is supposed to look like. And it's at that point, you know, the free market takes over and people figure out what the practical steps of filling in the blanks are. I mean, even if I had ideas, they probably wouldn't be right at this point. So you got to give the vision. You got to inspire people to ask the question, what does this, you know, freedom look like in this area according to the Bible? Yes, it's radical, but that's what God calls us to do. It is, and it's going to require sacrifice. If you're involved in some ungodly industry or some compromised industry as a part of your livelihood, you've got to come up with some kind of exit strategy. And yes, it's going to involve sacrifice. Probably there may be some guys who are able to change careers and not take much of a hit. But I mean, 
that's just going to be the reality of it. And Christians have to ask, do I want to be part of upper middle class urban culture the rest of my life and not glorify God? Or do I want to really want to affect change here, be part of the solution and maybe take a little sacrifice here and there? And, you know, you just said it. It was it was one of you that just said it. I, I can't tell whose voice is who on here, by the way. But one of you just said it. I said, we've got to move. Well, that means selling your house or moving uh, from one house to another or apartment to another, finding a new place to live in a new community. This is time. This is effort. This is money. That's sacrifice. You've got to be willing to do that. And that's, <laughs> that's obviously that's the biggest obstacle to this being successful in any generation or not. But it's also... Uh, the reason we rely on the Holy Spirit to do it, and when, when he does it, we glorify God. So that I, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer to that question by filling in steps 1 through 10, but at this point it really is just preaching the vision of what freedom is and allowing the Holy Spirit to take over in people's hearts and be inspired in that way. Yeah, that, um, yeah, that, was, um, that, well, that was me, and um, man, I was... What Adam is saying is really resonating with me a lot. Um, I got to a place where my wife and I, um, you know, we had a young son and we're, we're, we're part of a church plant. And the career that I was in was, was it was, it was lucrative. Um, I was making very good money, but it was, it was in like a resort, um, hospitality industry. It was late night bartending, um, managing and stuff like that. And it just wasn't good for my family. And also, um, my wife was working too in the medical field, and um, we just we were just convicted to uh, do a couple of things. But w- what we realized that to do these couple of things, it would require uh, steps to get there that we didn't know. We didn't know we didn't know what to do really. And our church tradition, our, our community, wasn't taking these steps yet, so we really didn't have many examples. So we've been the past four years have been a, a journey of us really just trying to figure things out. I've yet we have yet to reach the income that I was bringing in, um, even close to it. But we have more savings, and we have we're, we're, we have more family time. Um, my son is three years old, and he was just uh, surveyed by a friend of the families who 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 works for the government and goes around to the homeschool kids, you know, and make sure that they're up to par, or whatever. And he he's three years old, and he is re, he is doing many things at a five year old level, and that's simply because for the past year as a toddler, he's been homeschooled, just just in uh, reading and numbers and and things and catechism. Um, anyway, you know, we we have one we have one. We have one income. We could have two. I mean, and, and it's hard. But man, I wouldn't give it up for the world. Now that I see the fruit. Yeah, and it's not just the fruit. It's also the what you just me- mentioned. You have blessings that come along with it that you didn't think about. Uh, more time with your family. My goodness, do you know what that would do for society if more people had more dedicated time with their children instead of these broken homes and broken relationships and you know everything that comes along with that, especially in these communities where you see the riots and you see fatherlessness, uh, just think of how much that could be repaired if people dialed back a little bit, you know, made it less uh, less about how much money the home brings in as a total and spent more time with each other. And then God blesses you when you when you cut back on how much you're spending in 
on home payments and things of that nature, which is basically sunk costs. I mean, we could go through all of that, uh, cable bills and all that kind of stuff, sunk costs, lost costs, and that gets translated into savings, savings in time that you redeem with your family, savings in money that go into the bank instead of paying off interest rates for, for home 30-year mortgages and stuff like that, you have money in the bank. I mean, there's all kinds of blessings that come out of this by simply saying, you know what, I'm going to take a small sacrifice here. And you realize, you know, this isn't a sacrifice. It's a change, and it's a change in income, but it's a gain in so many other areas. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and move on to uh, another segment here. I mean, there's obviously we could devote a lot of time to restoring America. Um, and we're not actually, what's funny is we're not leaving this topic, uh, but we are going to talk about uh, a different a different book uh, with, with more more of a specific um, more of a specific message. And that is uh, a book called The New England Pulpit. And the American Revolution by Alice Baldwin. And we're going to go ahead and talk about that in our next segment when we come right back. Even though we still on earth, in heavenly places we're seated. Ephesians 2, you should read it. It's only because we're in Jesus. Well, I don't think some believe it. And I don't think that they see it. They think the church is defeated. But why we call him King Jesus? All right, guys, we're back with that that post mill. Uh, it's been a, an amazing first segment talking about restoring America. And as I mentioned before the break, we don't want to leave that topic. And to be honest, this entire podcast is devoted to that. We we want to see we want to see the church catch on to this beautiful reality that Christ is King and He is reigning over the nations. And this, uh, He's not a king that's just an absentee landlord. He's not king in only name, but He has an active vision that he is in a vocation and a movement that he is uh, moving in the world through his spirit-filled people. Now, speaking of the spirit-filled people, there is a huge issue in America right now. There is a split. Um, unfortunately, it, it seems to be majority is, is the wrong way on what is the purpose or what is the role of the pulpit. By pulpit, I mean the preaching on Sunday morning. When we gather on the Lord's Day and we partake of sacrament, we, we partake of fellowship and worship together, we also are there to hear the Word of God. The, the, the pastor, the preacher has the duty to preach God's Word to the people, for the Spirit of God speaks to the people through the Scriptures, as the confession is so clear about. But in our society, um, in the past couple decades, definitely, we have seen that the pulpit has become... Uh, something different. Yes, there's still someone speaking from the pulpit, um, but we have different opinions. And before we get into exactly what we're going to talk about, I want to open up with a, there was a local uh, pastor, um, Pastor Tolian, who is the head of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church here in my home, in my state of Florida. And he was on Morning Joe, and he spoke about this uh, he was asked about the pulpit and its role in, in terms of gauging society and discussing political issues. And he flat out right, he flat out said that the pulpit is not for that. It is not a place to engage society. It is not a place to talk about politics. It is a place, he says, to, quote, uh, speak God's remedy 
for the for the people's uh, sickness, a diagnosis for their sickness. And what he was meaning was he was talking about basically God's grace to, to forgive sin. And while I do not deny, we, none of us deny that the pulpit is a place to pronounce to the sinner God's grace. There is more in the Bible than just this idea of God's grace. And in fact, we would probably argue from our perspective that God's grace cannot be understood if we do not understand God's worldview, God's perspective. Indeed, the Bible has much more to say than just you are a sinner who can be forgiven and go to heaven. So um, anyway, Dr. Dr. McDurbin, we want to um, just take this opportunity to, um, there's an article here. I actually have it up here. I've read it a couple times today. It's very encouraged by it. I can't wait to get my hands on the book you discuss. If you can maybe open us up with this article, when, when America's pastors preached politics, resisted tyranny, and founded a nation on the Bible. Yeah, absolutely amazing book. Uh, one that uh, that Mr. Chavidian would be uh, would do himself well to read. By the way, Chavidian, we we're talking about how to pronounce that name earlier. It's an Armenian name, as I understand it, uh, and That's correct. which is <laughs> so is Rushduni. <laughs> They're both Armenians. Um, very, very interesting and long history there. We just passed the the uh, uh, anniversary of the Armenian genocide. 100-year anniversary that took place in 1915. Uh, Rush Juni was a second-generation immigrant from that uh, genocide. It was his grandfather, I believe, who was the primary eyewitness for the main history of that that was written by uh, by Viscount Bryce, was edited by a very young Arnold Toynbee, who, I don't know if you know the name or not, is a world-renowned scholar in history. Um, uh, that was Rush Dooney's grandfather. And, you know, Rush Dooney in Armenian, I believe, translates to something roughly like House of the King. So this is a political name from the beginning. What does Chavidjan translate as? I have no <laughs> idea. Um, I think maybe... House of everybody but the politician. Naked pulpit, maybe. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> the the comments he had, I wrote about that too. And, I, and you said he's the the leader of Coral Ridge Ministries, he's in the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in the pulpit there, and this, the stuff he said would have his success or his uh, predecessor rolling over in his grave, which was D. Oh, James yeah. Kennedy, uh, yeah. a man absolutely committed to restoring America to its biblical foundations, which is what American Vision exists to do. And, you know, this is just an absolute selling out of that vision. Um, you know, I don't get sidetracked into the issue of politics and religion. They're they're inseparable, absolutely inseparable. If you separate religion from politics, you're not separating the two. You're just handing it over to a rival religion. You can't. It's an inescapable concept. There's no neutrality there. You're you're either taking dominion in that area and asserting the crown rights of King Jesus, or you're handing it over to a rival king. In this case. It is a degenerate we the people. But uh, that's one reason I brought this book back was that, that you said in the past couple decades the pulpit's gone this way. Man, it's, it's really more like the past century and a half. It goes back way back to the 1830s when it was a designed effort to get the pulpit to quit talking about political effort, uh, efforts, unless, of course, it lines up with the secular agenda. They enjoy those kind of pulpit efforts. But, uh, you know, it was it was a, 
apostate Puritanism in New England in the 1830s that brought us uh, the gift of public schooling and a whole bunch of other social uh, type transformations that eventually wound up in the original social gospel. It is that kind of thinking that hands society over to liberals, Unitarians, apostates of all sorts. And when I found this book in Gary DeMar's library, which the, the building, which is American Vision, is about 80% library. And most of it's a library compiled by Gary DeMar over the past many years of about 25,000 volumes. And going through some sections on uh, looking for some old Puritan sermons, I found this book by a woman named Alice Baldwin, uh, written in 1923, or published in 23, called The New England Clergy and the American Revolution. I retitled it The New England Pulpit. But uh, I, I began to read this thinking it was going to be the standard Christian America line, which is usually a, a watered-down type Christian America gospel. Look at the Christian foundations of the Constitution, and, you know, they're, they're very, very watered down. And what I found was something much more solid than that. She went back to the original Puritans before the Revolution and showed that the foundations of the American Revolution, through the Stamp Act, through the Declaration of Independence, uh, all before the Constitution, were firmly rooted in Puritan preaching, specifically Puritan preaching that centered on the law of God. And she has this great comment that anyone who wants to talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or the original version of that phrase was life, liberty, and property, or a state. Anybody who wants to understand that has to go back to the preaching in America's pulpits for the century long before the Stamp Act of 19, uh, 1765 and the Declaration of Independence and see how these ideas were inculcated in the people weekly and more than weekly in tracts and pamphlets that were published and circulated throughout society by the clergy, by the pulpit, preaching specifically on political topics, specifically drawn from Old Testament law. And she has sections in the book where she uh, quotes from sermons on how they viewed natural law as not like the Enlightenment version we know today, but as God's law. <laughs> and in nature, yeah, it's there, but it's much more clear in Old Testament law. They're identical. If you want to know what natural law is and the foundations of law, you go to Old Testament law. And she quotes these sermons uh, just over and over and over again. In her bibliography, there's got to be one or two hundred maybe uh, sermons from these men spanning a time frame from the late 1600s all the way up till the 1780s. And it's just phenomenal work. It was her doctoral dissertation in the early uh, 1900s that later she turned into a book and published and she here's what one of the things so fascinating to me about this book is she was not uh, a partisan of our cause in any way she was just a secular academic who happened to be a descendant of congregational ministers for several generations and she was interested in the topic and so she went back and did a doctoral dissertation on it and she didn't whitewash anything. She pulled straight from their sermons and said, here's what they said, here's what they believed, here's how it impacted society, and published that. 
and it was early enough in American history that it it you know got published without being edited to death and she was in the peculiar position of being a woman in academia in the early 1900s which was very rare at the time and because of her work she ended up getting a position at what was then called Trinity College I believe is now Duke University she was the first one of the very few women professors and she was the first as far as I know Dean of an academic department uh, Dean for women at Duke University so she was a very prominent intellectual and and academic of her time was not trying to she had no axe to grind as far as trying to make the Puritans look good or show Christian American history and yet she did it better than pretty much anybody I know by merely sticking to the sources reading the sermons that came from those pulpits and so there's that angle that makes it such a great book to begin with but then when you read it and you hear the content of what these guys were preaching and how intimately they were involved in shaping public opinion in shaping public political ethics and it's it's just an open rebuke to the Tolian Chavidians of today and every pulpit that's like that that says we should separate the two and that the pulpit's no place for politics you know our forefathers didn't believe that you wouldn't have the freedom to stand here and say that if it weren't for guys who believe just the opposite of you do you you and practiced it so I took that book I published it strictly on its merits but also on my own agenda to get the pulpits to recognize we have a job to do in regard to public theology in regard to political ethics and make this the republication of this book after all these years a, a kind of a challenge and a call to America's pulpits today to start indulging in biblical law and start preaching it on these social topics once again and I I'm very excited about this book it's gotten a lot of attention when it first came out and and we're really actually kind of you know actually we put it out it sold out in the first day and we had to go back to the printer on an emergency print run and and by the time we got those books back we had almost sold out the ones we ordered that weren't even in stock yet and so we're, we're actually looking at a marketing strategy to get this in a much broader uh, get it a lot more attention because it's a message that needs to be heard today and it's a message uh, not just much needed but that will have a lot of impact if preachers once again like we said earlier catch that vision are willing to make the sacrifice of listening to the nonsense they get from certain quarters for preaching it and then actually following through and bringing practical solutions to the table this in my opinion is a revolutionary uh, book and can have a lot of great impact so and again, this is not Joel McDermott, the Theonomist writing. This is a secular academic from 1923 uh, saying things that she just went to the sources and preached the truth, uh, related the truth as it happened. So I think that's got lots of, a, lots of potential, and I think it's uh, obviously badly needed, and I think it actually uh, help a lot of people because there, there was... Uh, Another story came out about the same time as that story with Tolian, and it was uh, an interview with, I was I believe it was uh, George Barna from the Barna Research Group, 
and he was relating to the interview a study that they had done and had not published yet, in which they inquired among pastors, does the Bible apply to social issues? And the follow-up question, how often do you preach it and why or why not? Well, it was like 90-something percent of these guys said, yes, the Bible applies to these issues. And then the follow-up question, it was like 10% who said they actually preach on it. And the reason they don't is because they didn't want to rock the boat in their churches. They don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to upset people. So there's a, there's a huge need here. The pastors know they're not preaching the whole counsel of God. They know the Bible addresses these, these issues. What we need to overcome is that fear of resistance among the people. And when you put the message of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, in the context of regaining the freedoms that we once had and establishing a free society, that may be the way to go, especially in a society in which you have the vast advances of the homosexual lobby and Obamacare and all that kind of stuff. So I think we're going to watch this political episode play out again. There's going to be a lot more people uh, discouraged by what happens, in my opinion. And it's, it's then... Finally, we might wake some people up to start looking for a different type of solution. And that solution lays right there in that book and in the message that the pulpit needs to bring to those people. Yeah, I think that message is really important to get out there. Um, I feel like there's so many evangelical churches in America now that are just, you know, non-denominational. They're coming from, you know, it's it's just a, a guy who felt like he wanted to plant a church, maybe, you know, didn't go to seminary. Not that that's necessarily a requirement, but, you know, the the strong education, theological education isn't there, even in personal study. And it's just, you know, especially when you get all the lukewarm, you know, uh, uh, watered-down gospel type, you know, Willow Creek churches out there where they just, they really just don't know. But if I feel like if this message got to them, just to educate them, because, you know, the, where I grew up, you know, the church I grew up in was uh, non-denominational. You know, I, I think I think my pastor eventually got like an associate's and something. I'm not sure. But um, it's just there wasn't a lot of education on like the Christian worldview and how we should live and how that should influence things. So I feel like there's just, especially in, in American Christianity, there's a lot of pastors and churches who just like the leadership. They just don't know. They just have no idea. Like if you ask them, should you, you know, should you talk about, you know, who to vote for in the pulpit or politics at all, you know, I'm sure a lot would be like, well, I don't know. I would probably be a little uneasy. Would I get in trouble? We're a 501c3. I don't, I don't know how that would affect. They just don't know if that's something that they should or should not be speaking on. So I think that's definitely a message that would be powerful if it just got out there just to educate, to be like, this is a good thing. This is what we should be doing. This is what you as a pastor in the pulpit should be speaking on. Yeah, a couple things on that. Uh, the first one is, yeah, the, the Willow Creek problem, as, as it should be called, is out there. But one thing in our favor is the guy that who invented the Will, Willow Creek model, Bill Hybels, has come out and said it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We end up with a church full of people who love happy, clappy music and are absolutely shallow and are not advanced in the Christian faith at all. This is the leader of that, the inventor of that style of church has come out and said that some years ago. So 
I think people realize in a broad swath, especially the leaders involved in it, realize this is a failure. It does nothing but produce very shallow and uneducated Christians. And part of that is because the leadership is uneducated, as you say. But that, yeah, okay, yeah, they're not seminary educated, and that can be a problem in many many areas. But it's also a good thing in the sense that the seminary education that's provided today is, for the large part, inculcates and reinforces that view that you shouldn't be involved in social issues. And and when you get that education, you not only get that worldview reinforced, but you get all of the terminology and all the arguments and all the excuses and justifications for it. And you can point to scriptural you know, ish, uh, passages that seem to support your view, and people take you as an authority. Well, this guy's educated. He's been to seminary. This must be right. And it's not. So when guys don't have that and they realize there's a problem, they're going to look for solutions and they can look back to the seminary and they hear that stuff. They say they're going to say, this is this is nothing more than what I've been doing the whole time. But when somebody comes along and gives them, again, a vision and a program and it's based on biblical law and biblical authority, you've got somebody there who's now willing to make a change and willing to do something. So the uneducated part is usually good because those guys will listen to scripture more than they will to a certain tradition or a certain version of a certain tradition uh, like we have today with you know a lot of these reformed churches quote the the reformed standards as if they militate against our view and they have absolutely no understanding of the history of the 17th century that formulated those things was openly theonomic in many cases uh and, and yet they've created a version of it that's not, and they think it's confessional. My goodness, what a book could come out of that if someone had the time to pursue it. But the, the education issue doesn't bother me as much, and I've talked to several pastors who see that and who just, they come to you, I, what, what is the word? They're an open book in a lot of ways, but they're also just exhausted. They're, they don't know what to do. What do I do? And you just start speaking to them from square one on what a biblical worldview looks like and usually even if they walk away disagreeing with you in certain points they that you get a lot of nods when you talk about these things and when you come along with a book like what i have here and show look this nation was founded on preachers who used a majority of their time in the pulpit speaking against taxation against uh, tyranny who preaching resistance to tyranny and things of that nature uh, these guys you know, they weren't they weren't brainwashed by a generation of people who have been taught one way. They had a whole different view than we do. And, you know, you can take your pick. You can take the the pietists who came along after the fact and have caused all the trouble. Or you can make the little sacrifice uh, that comes along with it and stand up and preach like the guys that founded this thing did and see what happens. And honestly, I'd rather take my chances with the guys who founded the thing and see what happens. Dustin brought up uh, the 501c3 issue. Could you uh, speak to uh, what what biblical thought has to say about 501c3? Like, is there a danger be- behind being 501c3 or, be- uh, or do the benefits, um, are they outweighed by the drawbacks? My goodness, you, you want a whole other show and a whole other book now, don't you? Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a huge topic. I think the 
my my bottom line view is I think the whole 501c3 issue is ungodly and unbiblical. It needs to be trashed. And there's a whole lot to say here. There's guys that have written on it. A lot of it's good. A lot of it's some of it's too radical. Um, so it's it's a huge issue. I don't want to, you know, poke, you know, what is it? Step in that pile right now. But I will say this: I've actually done considerable amount of research in the past year or so on the history of 501c3 and the actual rules behind it, and it does hamstring us in a lot of ways. And and the way it came in was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it was it was squeaked in the Senate by then Senator Lyndon Johnson, really as a way to uh, how do you put this? really because he was trying to win election again in his Senate seat, and he was being challenged by some formidable people in Texas. And he, they, there was a lot of talk at the time about the great foundations like the Ford Foundation and whatnot being used by communists to infiltrate the country. And so he was able to create a system in which the churches uh, would stop preaching against his worldview and bring the conservatives along on the on the bill because it would it seemed to be an anti-communistic bill and in doing that they passed this this system as we have it today by a voice vote on an amendment to another bill and uh, and it passed and it almost happened in just a few minutes in on the floor of the Senate and and this the bill got signed it was a major uh, tax overhaul bill, so it wasn't going to be something that the president vetoed just for that one little issue. So anyway, it was kind of um, almost a Trojan horse a, uh, approach to doing this, and really it was never never intended to have the kind of effects that it has today. A lot of the way it's treated today are un- un- unintended consequences. And so, uh, but, but the, the salvation is that really churches don't need to apply for it anyway. Um, there are, uh, I, I don't have the references off the top of my head, so I'd, I would counsel listeners to go do the research themselves at this point, but there were official IRS publications that said churches don't need to apply for 501c3 status in order to remain tax-exempt. They are tax-exempt already by virtue of being churches. And churches fall for it anyway and go sign up for the benefit, which they already have, but in doing so, they waive their right to preach on certain topics in certain ways, or at least, you know, put themselves in jeopardy of being uh, audited and and treated cruelly by the IRS. And it's not necessary. So, you know, that also brings up a separate issue of incorporation of churches, and, and again, that's a whole podcast in itself and a whole book in itself, some of which I, I need to do the research on. But it's here, here's the bottom line. When, you, when your church becomes an incorporation, and especially when it files for 501c3 status, which is basically a separate incorporated status, you know, what is a corporation? What is a corporation? It is it's really a bottom line what it is. It's a covenantal body. The word corporation literally means a body, a corpus. You know, the body of Christ (laughs) is a divine corporation. When you file with the state to make your church a quote-unquote corporation filed with the state and subject it to the state's rules, 
you are inverting the scriptural order of how things are going. It is, it, you're not saying I'll keep church and state separate. You are violating the separation of church and state by doing that because you're subjecting the body of Christ to, in its local expression, being an arm of the state, being a creature, a creation of the state. And I can't think of anything more blasphemous and violation of the third commandment than that. So this is an area churches really need to explore uh, from the perspective of biblical law and really just from even from the perspective of, from the perspective of, uh, of man's law. <laughs> when, you, when you make your, your church become a state corporation, you are making it become a creature of the state and subjecting it to the state, and then therefore you're inverting the crown rights of King Jesus beneath the lawful order of the uh, secular state. So that's, that's the starting point for that discussion to happen. And all else that comes afterwards is, well, hey, you're the one that signed the papers, so what are you crying about? And, you know, there's a lot that could be preached on that from that perspective. Dr. McDermott, would you, uh, I, I guess what we'll have to do then is we'll have to have you back on to talk about that. <laughs> so do your research real quick. <laughs> yeah, I actually went and spent uh, part, most of a part of a day in, the, I live about 45 minutes from a major, uh, a very, very good library at Emory University, and spent part of a day there going through the federal registry on on the, the vote and the discussion on the floor, which was there hardly was any at all, reading some academic papers on it. Uh, the, the starting point, until I can actually get something written about that, there's been some fairly decent work done by the uh, Alliance Defending Faith, ADF, which is a legal group that advocates on behalf of a lot of Christian legal issues. And they started, I forget what they call it, the Pulpit Freedom Initiative or something of that that. Uh, that effect, in which they encourage pastors at, on organized days throughout the year to preach on openly political topics with the promise that the foundation will defend them if the government comes after them. And so they're trying to push the antithesis here on this issue, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, I have written critically of their program in certain areas and points, but I think overall it's a good thing for for ministers to start waking up to the issue and, you know, start trying to push the antithesis in there. What is going to actually end up happening, I think, what should happen is, you know, that they may lose that status, but when they do, they don't really lose anything. They need to acknowledge the fact that they're the church. They don't belong under the, the arm of the state to begin with in that way. And and when they lose it, they, they're still tax-exempt by virtue of being a church. So uh, that's that's a long way of saying there are people working on this, uh, some good, some not so good, some probably more trouble at this point than, than anything. But uh, there, there are guys who have taken a very radical stance and have won their cases, and guys who have not fared as well in different ways. But yeah, you're right. Well, I can come back on the show and talk about that, but it'll probably be a while before I get a chance to spend the time and go because I don't like I don't like publishing on something unless I've spent unless I've gone through most of the of the available material, and I just haven't done that with this yet. Cool. 
Well, thank you for uh, thank you for introducing that book to us. We will definitely all add that to our uh, to our required reading list. Um, and stay tuned, guys. We'll be right back after a quick break. Psalm 2 and 12, uh-huh. kiss the son of Paris. If you're waiting for him to come and reign in your an era, Ooh. on the throne of David, the Savior's already there. This is something that some in the church are not aware of. All right, well, welcome back to Depp Holsmill Podcast. Um, had an awesome conversation with Joel McDepp Holsmill. I mean, McDermott, same thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're really grateful for a lot of the stuff he had to say. We're thankful for, for his uh, ministry and his work at uh, American Vision and the books he's been putting out. And as uh, you all know, we've been running a contest for uh, doing reviews, rates and reviews on iTunes for our podcast. And we uh, the contest was to uh, anyone who rated and reviewed um, from day one up until now um, gets in on the contest. And we are going to pick a, a random name off the list. And we had a quite a few people do it. We appreciate it. Um, they're all five-star reviews, so that's good. Um, the contest didn't get into the wrong hands, apparently, so that's that's good. Um, so let's go ahead and pick the name, and we will, uh, yeah, let's see who wins. Drum roll, please. And the winner is Wesley Rexroad. Congratulations, Wesley. Congratulations. Yes. And not only is this just a regular book, it's a signed autographed copy by Joel McDap Postman himself. Maybe he'll even throw a hashtag Dap Postmill in his signature and his autograph. We'll see. You'll have to take a picture and post it on our wall. Let us know what it looks like. <laughs> well, we will, uh, we'll get that sent out to you. Um, if, uh, when, once you listen to this, if you can just reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or email or something, um, otherwise we'll try to reach out to you and connect. We'll get in contact with you and we will get that book sent out to you right away. Also, we wanted to do something special for those who, um, listen to the podcast on a more regular basis for those listening this week of, um, when we pull, we launch this, um, we're going to run a special, um, giveaway for all of you listening. We want to thank you for listening, obviously. And, uh, up until from now until Friday, the end of the week, if you do something really special for us, you are going to win. We're going to give away also another book, the one that we ended talking, the New England Pulpit and the American Revolution. Um, but to win the book, you have to. They can just email us and uh, tell us their favorite part of this episode and we'll do a drawing. We'll just we'll just pick whichever email we like the best. Yeah, we can do that. We yeah. can do that. We, we, we have the right to be like... We can show partiality here. We don't have to do everything. Like, Sweet. Yeah. So impress us. Yeah. Whoever sends impress, us the most money. <laughs> <laughs> they should just buy the book if they want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you ruined it. You ruined it. Yeah, you can email us, datpostmail, D-A-T-P-O-S-T-M-I-L, 1L, at gmail.com. Um, what else? Come on. How about a shout-out on Twitter? Give us a shout-out saying this is the... Latest, greatest podcast. Absolutely. Bring in the kingdom. Shout, shout out on Twitter. That'll get you an entry. You can, how about you can do, uh, you can do one of, of, uh, multiple ways. You can send us an email. That'll give you one entry. You can do, give a shout out, um, on Twitter. You can give a shout out on Facebook. Tag our page. Um, you can do it on your own page. You can do it in a group, whatever. Um, 
if you're on Google Plus, we are on Google Plus. Um, so are people, there are a few people, people use there. that? People use Google Plus. Yeah, Google employees do use it, and we use it for Google Hangouts. So <laughs> we, we got to reach Google too, right? <laughs> That's awesome. If you uh, reach out to us in some way, every time you hit us on a social media network, that'll be an entry, and we will uh, we'll do a drawing. Um, we'll announce it on our Facebook page on Friday. How's that sound for the winner? Sounds good. So, so Joel, are there are there any uh, resources other than the two books that you mentioned and uh, the uh, American Vision website? Are there any other resources that you would direct people to to uh, just have a better understanding and maybe a deeper deeper study on uh, this these issues? Well, I mean, yeah, of course. Uh, if you just go to the American Vision store, which is store.americanvision.org, I mean, we have dozens of books, DVDs on all topics. Uh, if you want to look at the, the literature of the Reconstruction movement or theonomic movement over the past uh, four decades or so, there are hundreds of books on various topics. And many of them, in fact, most of them are online for free. If you look at uh, Gary North's website, Gary North's four slash free books, I think, and the calcedon.edu website has a lot of Rush Dooney's books and articles online for free. But uh, a lot of people are overwhelmed, actually, by the amount of material that there is on these topics. And so I actually put together an article some time ago uh, called a Christian Reconstruction Reading List. And if you Google that, along with my name, it'll probably be the first hit on the search. And it, it gives you kind of a directed reading list, along with some discussion about the material uh, just dozens of books. And you go down there through topics on worldview, eschatology, history, biblical law, uh, and and more, economics. And there are good resources under each one of those topics for beginners, for intermediate readers, for advanced readers. So, yeah, there's tons of stuff to read. Uh, in, in addition to almost daily articles that I put up on AmericanVision.org, uh, in addition to that, and it's not just the topics we've been discussing here tonight, it's you know, biblical exegesis, it's, like I said, economics, it's across the spectrum on these issues. So, yeah, absolutely, go. I encourage people, as I actually say in that article, a lot of people will pick up one book from our movement, uh, depending on, it doesn't, doesn't matter what topic it's on, and when they finish it, they're hooked. And so the entry point for, for study in this, in this kind of uh, sphere of theology can be anywhere. And then you'll eventually arrive at wanting to understand the foundations of it, the history of it, the biblical worldview, the, the future aspect of it, post-millennial aspect and all that. So I've, I've outlined a lot of that already in that article that can help a lot of people. Again, Christian Reconstruction reading list. So, yeah, there's tons of stuff, and I encourage people to go just start somewhere because wherever you start, you'll you'll end up reading a lot more after that. Thank you so much for joining us um, on the show today, Dr. McDermott. You guys uh, connect with him as best you can. Find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Apparently, follow us on Google Plus if you work for Google. And... Um, <laughs> uh, 
uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe via RSS feed and go to datpostmill.com to connect with us. Hashtag datpostmill. And the meat Jesus said that the earth they shall inherit. Some think it's getting worse, but how Jesus removed the curse. He has dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Now he's reigning from heaven. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Psalm 72 11. This is an anthem. This song is not an apologetic. This is a song that lets you know Christ is king because I read it. If you want to debate, name a time and place and we'll get it. The progression of the kingdom of God is where my head is. A post-millennial age is where we're headed. Christ is conquering the nations. Yeah, I said it. Jesus the Messiah brought the expected kingdom on time and as planned. He is seated and reigning now. His kingdom will grow in history through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The world will experience the transformational blessings that peace with God brings. Jesus will return for the resurrection of the just and the unjust after, after all his enemies are put under his feet in victory. The last enemy is death.